Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Ian Welsh. The Innovation Forum team was in Amsterdam in October for this year's Future of Plastics and Packaging Conference. And I was delighted to speak at the event with a number of expert panellists and participants to get some insight into the issues and challenges raised across the two days of discussion. So coming up are Nestle's Jody Roussel, UNEP's Lorenz Mia Ikenal, Daniel Katz from the Overbrook Foundation and Rainforest Alliance, Sebastian Winden from RAP, Steve Harbin from Plastic Collective and Innovation Forum's Katie Ball and Tanya Richard. Reflecting on some of the trends in packaging and how the sector is shifting towards tougher mandatory compliance standards, the rules of next generation recycling reuse schemes and more. I'm with Jodie Roussel from Nestle. Welcome back to the conference, Jodie. Thank you, Ian. What are the key trends you're seeing in the packaging sector right now? Some of the trends we're looking at now are consumer preference, regulatory developments. Looking forward to a period now of a lot of change in the industry where we're moving from an era that's been characterized by voluntary commitments, voluntary corporate action like design and reporting, to now moving into a phase of um, tremendous transformation where we're expecting new regulation to shape the industry and we move from a voluntary space to really a mandatory compliance space. We've been talking a lot today about that very thing, the fact that it's becoming much more regulation. The regulation is almost catching up with best practice. Not least, of course, the Global Plastics Treaty. What are your hopes for the treaty? In terms of the rest of this year, certainly we, along with other members of the Business Coalition for the Global Plastics Treaty, are looking forward to the negotiations on the zero draft starting in November. But overall, you know, businesses respond to certainty. So one of the things that we're hoping for is that ultimately the treaty will deliver, require governments to implement basic regulation on the full life cycle of plastics. So that that way, voluntary best practices that exist today are no longer a ceiling, but rather they become a floor for all businesses to follow certain standards under future national laws and for all governments to have certain minimum standards that are regulated, harmonizing legislation effectively through the treaty as a mechanism. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, ultimately the goal of these global treaties is to really bring everybody forward and bring all the different bits of legislation that are enacted across the world, bring them all together. Something else we talked about today, and we've heard lots of interesting anecdotes around is the move towards a a reuse, refill type model. Where's Nestle on that? We've done quite a bit of piloting, over 20 pilots in 12 countries, looking at both reuse systems and refill systems. What we've learned through those pilots is that today, reuse is not terribly convenient for consumers. It demands extra effort. And we've recognized that there are certain enabling conditions that will be really helpful to put in place to enable industry at scale to support reuse and refill. Now, some of these enabling conditions that governments can put in place include mandates that look at category by category transitions to reuse. Not putting general requirements in place for reuse, but rather to say a specific product category needs to move. Another enabling condition certainly is a clear timeline, retro-planned, to implement a shift in an industry from predominantly single-use packaging to a mix where both reusable packaging or refill packaging can also be on the market at the same time as single-use. We also need to look at competition laws and recognizing some standards like the ones that have been developed by PR3 for washing systems, sanitizing, collection points, digital communications, all for reusable or refillable packaging. And what are the barriers to action then? Today, this is largely about voluntary corporate programs. 
One of the barriers certainly is in the gray area around competition law and industry collaboration. Today, collaboration can only be facilitated through industry associations, and if we look to drive the lowest cost and highest performing system in the future, this may be facilitated through pool packaging systems. Pool packaging systems require collaboration, so we need to take a new look at how competition laws are enabling or hindering such cross-industry engagement. I think another challenge is today it's all about voluntary action. If we actually have a regulatory playing field that's mandating reuse and refill as part of promoting a circular economy mindset instead of the linear model of the present, regulation is going to enable all players to have certainty and businesses react well to certainty. It does seem that this is a, an area where good legislation can really play out a really important and central job. We spoke last year, here we are talking again. What do you think we'll be talking about in 12 months time? If I have the privilege to talk to you in 12 months time, I think we'll probably be looking at where the treaty is. How close are we actually to negotiations being complete? Today we have a year and a half left. We'll also be next year, probably 12 months after the announcement of the PPWR package. So we'll also see what is that doing in Europe. We'll also have new information about other governments that are implementing cutting edge regulation like the Canadians, who have a number of innovative proposals on the table. So I think from a regulatory perspective, we expect a lot to change in a year. The speed of change is definitely increasing. From a packaging innovation perspective, there are many companies working together with the Consumer Goods Forum, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, on reuse and refill, exploring what are possible systems for the scale-up of reuse and refill. So I think we'll be a lot further along in that discussion about what are enabling conditions, how can government as well as business and associations help to enable a new ecosystem and where are the opportunities for investment to unlock that ecosystem? Well, let's make sure we do talk again in 12 months' time. I look yeah. forward to it. Drew yourself from Nestle. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ian. And joining me now is Lorenz Mia E. Canals from UNEP. Welcome. Thank you, Ian. We were talking earlier about the Global Plastics Treaty. What are you hoping the impact of the treaty will be? The treaty is trying to address plastic pollution and for that we actually need to change the whole system, the way in which we have and we use plastics in the economy. That can only be achieved at the international level by setting the right boundaries, the right conditions, obligations for all actors across the plastics life cycle to do their bit in ensuring that plastic is used in the economy but is kept out of the environment. How do you see other regulatory improvements helping alongside the plastics treaty? Well, we've seen a lot because of the lack of an international approach. We've seen a lot of countries coming forward with their own legislation. We see more and more of these legislative approaches that are dealing with the whole life cycle of plastics. And that's very encouraging. At the same time, because plastics work across boundaries, because the plastics value chain is international, many of the decisions can only be suboptimal when they are taken at a country or at a regional level. We need some boundaries and some conditions, some standard approaches that work the same everywhere. Are you recognizing a greater need or a greater recognition of the need for alignment? Yes, absolutely. And I think particularly when we talk to the private sector, but we also talk to countries, many countries that are pushing for specific regulations. If their neighbor countries are not pushing for those regulations, well, we see cross-border issues. Products that are banned in one country are imported illegally sometimes from another country. I think many, many actors are recognizing that we need to work on this together, following similar approaches and, and aligned approaches. What then do you think the long-term approach will be in terms of life cycle analysis? I mean, it strikes me that that's a key part of all of this, is to develop a programme of full life cycle analysis across the board. 
Absolutely. And life cycle analysis is the most powerful tool that we have to assess sustainability of different options. It's absolutely indispensable that we use LCA, life cycle analysis, to compare different options that we have to go about things. If we're replacing problematic plastic products, what are we replacing them with? How are the alternatives more uh, sustainable? So LCA is crucial for that. It's not enough. We need also other approaches. The issue as well with life cycle analysis is that we're seeing already companies, particularly private sector, using results of life cycle assessment or what they call life cycle assessment that don't follow international guidance. Sometimes they are only focusing on greenhouse gas emissions. Sometimes they are not assessing the full life cycle. They are not disclosing what type of conditions, what type of parameters they are using in their studies. So we need strong standards and strong guidance on how LCA can be used to assess the different options. Thinking back to the treaty again, I mean, what are your hopes for the next year? I mean, obviously we've got the, you know, the draft is out and everyone's looking at it. What are you hoping to see? And, and actually, I have to say also the zero draft that was, by the way, published a few weeks ago, but now we have it in all languages, so we have the final version. The zero draft is already a great contribution to the negotiation. Now negotiators have something concrete to look at. The zero draft was requested from the chair of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, and it looks at the whole life cycle. So it already proposes actions, obligations that would affect different stages of the life cycle of plastics, and it proposes different options. It obviously doesn't preclude any new options that the negotiators will want to bring in, but I think we have a very good starting place. The member states have a good starting place to advance. What I'm hoping is that we will quickly identify which are the points that are harder to discuss and that progress will be made, particularly also in the intersessional process, because just as a reminder, we have the third session of the INC now in November. We have two more sessions in spring 2024 and then at the end of 2024. We don't have a lot of time. I mean, the the member states set themselves a very ambitious target in terms of achieving this agreement by the end of 2024. I think we're on a good footing to get there, but of course there's a lot of work to be done. Well, as you said, the full draft is now available. It was gratifying to see that many of the people at the event this morning, because you asked who's read it, and then several hands went up, which was great to see. And indeed, no doubt we'll return next year and find out where we got with the initial draft. But for now, Lawrence from UNEP, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Joining me now is Daniel Katz from the Overbrook Foundation and, of course, from Rainforest Alliance. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. So we've been talking about deposit return schemes and you mentioned a little bit in the session about what doesn't work. What doesn't work? When do deposit return schemes not work? I think there's a lot of reasons for the schemes to both work and not work. As we heard, a lot of it depends on how easy the system is, whether or not it's hard for a consumer to figure out where the returns need to go. But also, for example, in the United States, these bottle bills are seen as a tax. And one of the things that happened, for example, in New York State, the bottle bill initiated with a nickel, five cents, and over time, uh, a nickel was worth less. So as the nickel was worth less, people had less incentive to return their bottles and cans. We eventually got the rate up to a dime, 10 cents, and the rates went up. But as we heard in Germany, rates are 25 euro cent, and the rates are really, really high, along with a good infrastructure. So that's a fantastic way to have a great success rate. So it has to do with cost, it has to do with ease, and it has to do with the overall infrastructure. And again, the incentives right, I guess, at every stage. The money flow is always very important. What should that look like for a successful scheme? Who gets the money back is a big question. Is it going to go to the manufacturers, the Cokes and Pepsis of the world? Is it going to go to the retailers, the grocery stores? I think that's a good place for it if they have to do a lot of the work. Or is it going to go back to the consumers who end up paying that tax? I think 
getting the money back to the consumers is probably the first line and then to the grocery stores the retailers and then lastly if it has to go back to the manufacturers because they're making the most money along the chain anyway. We've heard a lot about collaboration the past couple of days, thinking in terms of DRS schemes and also broader collaboration around plastic waste. You've been around for some time <laughs> um, and I've seen a lot of collaboration. What do you think that good collaboration needs to look like to really get to grips with the kind of plastic waste problem we've got? Plastic waste or any other kind of problem that we're dealing with we definitely are going to need to collaborate because there's no one organization, for-profit, not-for-profit government that's going to be large enough to deal with all these problems. Collaboration is going to be key and collaboration begins with trust. And without that trust, nothing will work well. And in order to have that trust, we're going to need more transparency. What are the motivations? What are the incentives? Who's getting what? And how can we come up with a system where the benefits start with equity? We have to support the people and the countries that have been hit first and worst and are suffering the most, those in the, on frontline communities, those who live near industrial plants that are suffering from plastic waste. And then I think that the benefits should roll upward. A rising tide will lift all ships. And it has to be like that as well. We can't just have more profits for big companies because that's not going to get us there. We've had a lot of conversations over the past couple of days, some really interesting points from lots of different organizations and companies. What has given you hope from reflecting on what you've heard from the past couple of days? So at the Overbrook Foundation, we're looking for organizations, nonprofit organizations that can punch above their weight, that are making a big impact. And over the last few days, I've met with several nonprofits and I've heard from a number of startup companies or those who actually are beyond the startup stage that are making a big impact. They're innovating for environmental change that's going to lead us into the next decade and potentially into the next century. So when I look out in the room, having worked on environmental issues for some 40 years now, I see a lot of young, super smart people that are innovating great solutions. Unfortunately, we created a lot of the problems. My generation created a lot of the problems that they have to solve. But the beauty of it is there are plenty of people out here at this workshop these last few days that aren't running from the problem, but they're attacking it. And they're attacking it with creative, innovative, entrepreneurial solutions that are going to be good for people and the planet. I couldn't agree more. Over the past couple of years at this, this event, it's really now at the solution stage. And there's also exciting solutions emerging. And that is a reason for hope. Daniel Katz, thanks very much. Thank you again for having me. Joining me now is Steve Hardman from Plastic Collective. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. We've been talking about plastic credits. What are plastic credits? Plastic credits, very similar to carbon credits, they're an instrument that allows brands to buy environmental impact in the form of plastic collection and plastic recycling to offset against the plastic that they put into the environment and uh, the plastic that they put into the market that goes unrecycled. Could be a polluter's charter. How would they sit within the context of company commitments to reduce plastic use? Yeah, that's we would refer to that as plastic mitigation plans. All companies should have plastic mitigation plans and if they choose to do a plastic credit program as a part of that mitigation plan, it needs to be credible and it needs to address plastic. Now, if they don't have a mitigation plan, then use plastic credits. They are at risk of being accused of buying a license to continue polluting. In the same way that any company can only credibly buy carbon offsets if they are at the same time reducing their carbon emissions as fast as possible exactly. and as swiftly as possible. So it's the same yeah. argument there. Tell us a bit about some of the projects that you invest in. 
We work with about 30 projects around the world at the moment uh, at different stages of their journey to generate plastic credits. The one that we talk about the most is a project in Ghana, Accra, which is probably the most advanced. We've completed their certification to generate credits and they're just beginning to generate credits and we've been able to pre-sell many of their credits which has helped them out enormously and we're currently working on quite a major transaction for them to finance them for the next 10 years and if that transaction goes through then they will expand their capacity from 3,000 tonnes of plastic processing per year to 16,000 tonnes within the next three years. So it will be a real game changer for them. Accra, of course, has no municipal <coughs> waste collection. Could plastic credits going forward be used to develop municipal waste collection facilities in cities like Accra but other places around the world? Yeah, absolutely. This is a big problem in emerging nations. And because plastic has a value, even in emerging nations, then there is a scenario where plastic credits could finance the development of plastic recycling in, in these countries and then eventually morph into municipal waste management services across the full portfolio of waste. That again would give the sort of buy-benefits that you get from carbon projects where the, kind of the infrastructures are improved, the community livelihoods are improved, economic benefits are improved, and a very similar process. Absolutely. It's a really significant thing. I mean, of course, there is the benefit the plastic credits provide the, the brands, but there's the social and environmental impact that goes along with it. But if you could also deliver municipal waste management services that don't previously exist, then it really is quite game-changing. How are the credits costed? How does that work? Completely market-driven, but certain characteristics affect the price of credits. Projects which come out of emerging nations, ironically, are typically more valuable because of the social and environmental impact that they always make. For example, the project in Accra, operated by women who previously lived in poverty, they protect a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the project is owned by the community, etc, etc. And so these characteristics, we call it charisma, will help drive the price up. It's an interesting real-world solution, and let's see where it goes. But thanks very much indeed, Steve. Pleasure. Forums, Katie Ball. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ian. You ran this event. What were you expecting from the two days? We were expecting to cover a lot of very complex topics. So we really dove into chemical recycling, material dilemmas, the evolving legislative landscape. So a lot of constantly evolving and technical and very complex supply chain issues. We're hoping to get really deep into a lot of these super challenging issues that a lot of brands, retailers and other organizations don't necessarily know what the next year, let alone five years, looks like. What do you think that we actually got from the two days? I think our speakers did a really good job of setting the scene, of giving our attendees a background on these issues, but then also supplying those practical examples, the case studies, the obstacles that many have overcome internally and challenges they faced, as well as forward-thinking solutions and just dropping in ideas that may not work for every organization, but certainly are very applicable for many in the room to pick and choose what works best for their consumers and their business strategies. What do you think we should include in next year's agenda? Policies, it was a big one this year, but I think next year will be even more interesting because we'll have the results of all the INC meetings, Global Plastics Treaty, guidance and compliance regulations will have come out at that point. Many brands and retailers are setting the groundwork, they're doing the work now, but in a year's time, we're gonna have a, a good idea of the impact that that's truly having internally in their organizations. Yep, I think you're right, it's gonna be a big year. Mm -hmm. Katie, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Ian. by my colleague Tanya Richard. Hi, Hi Tanya. Ian. So we've just done a wrap-up session following the final of the Future in Plastics and Packaging event here in Amsterdam. 
What are you taking away from the event? I can see my headers already, but Plastics Treaty is a huge one. I'm sure that's been mentioned in a lot of the videos that you've been recording. But it's being seen as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but then trying to see how to actually make it that, how do we actually get together, bring all of the different actors that need to be brought together. Our conferences are very business-focused, but we need to make sure that we bring all of those actors together to make sure it actually is what it's set out to be. Yeah, I agreed. It needs to be comprehensive and take account of all the other work that's been done the EU directives, for example, um, and ensure that it, can, it does establish best practice. For me, a really interesting conversations around the need for education with consumers, for communication with consumers. In fact, we've just had a session where we were told not to call them consumers, we should in terms of customers or citizens. But I think it's really important that there is that element of collaboration around getting the messaging right. We did hear today of instances where manufacturers were being required to, in fact, increase their emissions footprint by retailers mm -hmm. because of the way that they want the packaging to change. And we need to get away from thinking that all plastic is bad. It kind of feels that we were getting away from that, but there's still an element of that around, which I think is really challenging. Any other things that yeah. took your fancy? I mean, the, compared to our other conferences, the plastics one where in innovation is so big. Like There's so many cool startups and so many cool ideas that are really being tried to scale. Um, it seems like there's a kind of a resounding agreement that there is everything that we need out there. It's just about trying to bring it the speed to market, how to scale it, how to reduce the barriers of legislation and regulatory barriers um, to try and get them there. A lot of companies don't want to work with them if they don't have the right volume to work with them. So how yep. do we get them to that level so that we can then get to that level? So th it's out there. It's just working together to try and get it scaled. To, to scale. I know, exactly. To, to scale is a big issue. There are a lot of ch conversations around feedstock and scale and, mm. those, and concerns around who should have the right feedstock, where should the feedstock go, what's the best use of it. Something that really caught my attention. Last year, there was a lot of negativity around the potential of chemical recycling processes. This year, it felt that there was a significantly greater acceptance that that chemical recycling is going to be part of the process. It's going to mm -hmm. be, a, you know, alongside more efficient mechanical recycling, chemical recycling processes are necessarily going to be part of the mix because of the ability to get back to the virgin quality products that so many specific plastic uses require, the kind of medical use, the food use as well. So it's been a really interesting conference. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you say that is for next year. <laughs> well, <you never laughs> what was going to be the change for next year? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Someone pointed out just at the very end, you know, will we start to see a backlash against paper? Because consumers are being educated and they will realise that sometimes paper isn't the right solution. So maybe, you know, we were joking, maybe we'll make it the Future of Paper and Packaging <laughs> Conference in 2028. Tanya, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Do keep an eye on the Innovation Forum website for more reflections on this and the other events in our autumn conference season. That's it for now, though. I've been Ian Welsh, and goodbye.